Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, open it to uh, Genesis chapter 4. We'll be looking at the entirety of this chapter. And I'll begin reading at verse 1. Now Adam knew knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and they, and they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel. And killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other's other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who, who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the, the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. Just by the way, we have dibs on that name. That's a baby name. So if any of you guys are thinking, Tubal-Cain. That's a joke. I'm kidding. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was named Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the truth uh, and reality of your word. God, that we can look back in the history of your people uh, and be reminded um, of how you worked out your salvation, even when, even when it just looked just completely dark, even when it looked like there was absolutely no hope, that we were able to see these glimpses of light. So God, I pray that you would show us that today, that you would give us um, ears to hear, give us minds to understand, Help us to pay attention to what it is that you have to say to us from your holy word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in probably one of his more theologically accurate uh, songs, this was his pre-Christian days, Kanye West. I'm not sure where Kanye West is now. Last year he was a Christian. This year I'm not too sure about it. We'll see what happens. But this was back in 2004. He wrote a song called Jesus Walks. And it begins with these words. He says, we're at war. We're at war with terrorism, racism, but most of all, we're at war with ourselves. And the story of Cain and Abel shows us how true this last line is. We are at war with ourselves. We're at war with whether to do well or not to do well. That's the choice before us every single day. To choose flourishing in ourselves like Cain, or to trust that God's flourishing is best like Abel. But sin's progress is what makes this difficult to do on our own. Darkness is heavy. Temptation seems impossible to resist. And truthfully, we just want to do our own thing, don't we? We want to have our own way. We want things to go according to our plans, even when we know it's not God's way. We've we've seen that, sadly, in the news of uh, Ravi Zacharias this week. Or or, or the pastor, Carl Lentz, who pastored uh, one of the largest Hillsong churches in America, in New York City. Even when we know that it's not God's way, we still want it. So our text today walks us through the origin of this way of living, but at the same time, it doesn't leave us without hope. We're not left in the dark by the end of Genesis chapter 4. So we'll look at it three ways today. One is sin's dominance, two is sin's intensity, and then three is sin's reversal. So sin's dominance, sin's intensity, and sin's reversal. So first, sin's dominance. So even after uh, Adam and Eve learned that, uh, that child, childbearing will now be cursed, that there will be pain in childbearing, Adam and Eve still conceive. They still go through with it. And this is just a side note, because I know we have a, a number of pregnant ladies in our, in our midst and people who have given, uh, ladies who have given birth already, but God in His grace... This just tells you that God in his grace has made women tough as nails. That they would hear like, it's going to hurt bad and still go through with it. That just says a lot. So anyways, just guys remember that. Um, but what we see in their eagerness to have children is this attempt to see that the promise of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, if you remember what that was from last week, that God is bringing one that would be the snake crusher. And Adam and Eve 
want to see this fulfilled immediately. They heard God say, when God said that the snake crusher would be coming from this woman's line, so they waste no time bringing him into the world. You see, they, they know what they've lost at the fall. They, they continue, they probably wake up in the middle of the night thinking uh, how stupid they were, how foolish they were to listen to the deceiver. They know what they've lost, and they want the garden back. They want their relationship with God back. They want the snake dead. But they know that they cannot do that on their own. There's no way. They need the one that God has promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, we all hope the best uh, for every child that we have. We have aspirations and dreams for them. We want to see them accomplish certain things, make this amount of money. We want them to give us grandchildren and all that stuff. And so we we have all of these dreams for them. But in the whole of human history, there has never been more hope for any child than the hope Adam and Eve have for their first child. Adam and Eve have have never experienced pregnancy before. They've never given birth. This is the first of, 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 this, this has ever happened in all of creation. So this was without a doubt, for so many reasons, the most exciting and anticipated birth ever. But what they didn't know, as they held their cooing baby in their arms was that they held a little murderer, a killer. He was not to be the snake crusher, as they thought, but rather evidence that the progress of sin was already wreaking havoc in the world. Notice how Eve, in her pride in verse 1, gives herself credit for the conception and birth of Cain. As it, almost as if she's foreshadowing the destiny of her firstborn son. She says, I, I have gotten a man. I have gotten a man. Now, there's two important things you have to learn to notice about this in the language of verse 1. If you go back, the, the, the Bible, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, not in English. King James Version. That, it, wasn't, it wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew. So when we look in the original language, sometimes that brings out uh, or sheds light on uh, certain things um, that we don't actually see in the English translation. So I just want to highlight a couple of things for you. First is the, the, the word Cain or, or the, the, the name of the firstborn son, Cain. It sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired So when Eve says that she has gotten a man from the Lord, she's either doing one of two things with Cain's name. She is either punning on the name Cain or actually explaining why that name was given to the firstborn child. So in in view of of the promise of a deliverer from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the name that Eve gives to her firstborn son probably means... Here he is. Here he is. Which would give us an idea of what Adam and Eve actually believed about God's promise 
coupled with the birth of their firstborn son. So Eve calls her son, here he is, because she thought that Cain was the fulfilled promise of chapter 3, verse 15. So Eve could essentially say, here he is. Here is the snake crusher. He's here. I've conceived him and I've bore him. The second thing that we see is that Eve did not, did not actually say the words as most English uh, Bibles translate, with the help of the Lord. That actually doesn't show up in the Hebrew in that particular way. So sometimes translators will, will translate a certain way because they think that that, prop, that might be, that's close to what the Hebrew was getting at, but in actuality it changes things theologically sometimes. And I think that's what happens here in our English translation. So the words with the help of are not, are not in the Hebrew text. So the Hebrew text would then read... Um, and makes way more sense if you couple it with the hopes of Adam and Eve. It reads this way. This is, this is what Eve is actually saying. She says, I have brought forth the Lord. I have brought forth the Lord. So, so the promised one is here, so Eve thinks. And that's how she communicates it to the world. I have brought forth the Messiah. I have brought forth the snake crusher. And Cain apparently is this person. Now in verse 2 we learn that Eve actually gives birth to two sons. Poor old Abel does not get a whole lot of attention here. But she gives birth to two sons. Cain who is described as a worker of the ground. And then Abel who is described as a keeper of the sheep. And that's about all we know about him. Both are fulfilling God's creation mandate. You see it in just the way that they work. They subdue. They have dominion. Uh, that they are actually uh, working vocations. They have jobs. So they are both, we could say, living in the way that God intended them to live. God says that you will, uh, you will have dominion. You will subdue. You will work. You will do all of these things. Until we get to verses 3 and 4. So we could say that in verses 3 and 4, we begin to see the development of what it means to be religious versus what it means to, to truly believe that God is who he says he is. So Cain and Abel are representatives of two kinds of people we see in the setting of worship. Let me explain this. Now, I always thought that because of the brothers' vocations, that is why they brought the offerings they brought. And par that's partially true. Um, Abel worked with the sheep, so he brings, he brings the sheep as his offering. Cain works the land, so he brings the fruit of the land for his offering. And for some reason, I guess in my, like, my, my, my child brain, for so long, for some reason, I always assumed that Cain just brought bad fruit. That maybe he just brought some, some bruised oranges and just kind of rolled them out onto the altar and said, here you go, Lord, take them for what they are. And that's what he did. But that's actually not the case at all. Cain doesn't bring a bad offering. He brings, the Bible says he brings the first fruits, which are the best fruits, to the, as an offering. His offering is perfectly fine. And it's uh, actually... Uh, uh, in, later in Leviticus 2.12, 
when God is kind of spelling out the law for his people and saying, these are the types of offerings that you should bring, and this is how you should bring the offerings before me, and, and to get these things right. In Leviticus 2.12, it says, you can bring an offering like Cain brought the offering. But it was an offering, according to Leviticus 2, that was typically accompanied by a burnt offering. So no, what Cain does is he actually brings the wrong offering before the Lord, or in the wrong way, because his offering lacks what is needed for forgiveness. His offering lacks what is needed to come before a holy God, and what is needed to come before a holy God is blood. Abel understood that, but Cain does not. Abel's offering communicated a belief in God and was looking forward to a provision of a deliverer. He didn't know what this would look like, but he was looking forward to a provision of a deliverer. But when Cain brought his, his, his offering, he was communicating unbelief. He was communicating uh, an indifference towards God. His pride in being the firstborn, maybe. Maybe his, his parents have kind of uh, hyped him up to him and said, you are, you are the chosen one. You are the one who's going to save uh, our people. You are the one that's going to bring us back to the garden. And maybe this is the, the mindset that Cain has had. And he thought, no, nah, I don't need to do this. Well, of course, God rejects his offering. And then Cain reacts to this news by getting bent out of shape. Verse 5 says that his, his face was downcast. He was saddened by this. He was depressed by this. And this reaction tells us that Cain was expecting God just to look over his blatant disobedience. And God responds to him in verses 6 through 7 by walking him through the logic of his situation. If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? It's that easy. God, and God knows that Cain knows this. Doing well equals acceptance. We saw that with Abel's offering. Not doing well, God says, equals sin crouching at your door. In the Hebrew, uh, uh, God is actually saying to or asking the question to Cain, will there not be a lifting up of your face if you do well? Will I not lift your face up again if you just do well? Well, this tells us that there is a huge difference between living out of acceptance by the Father already. Because if you're in Christ, the Father accepts you. No matter what sins that you have committed before you walked through these doors or what sins you have committed as you sit here, the Father accepts you in Christ. So there's a big difference between living out of that acceptance and living out of your own idea of acceptance. Meaning, God should just be happy with my efforts and just let it be. Even if I'm not approaching him in the right way, that you should just accept it. The lifting up of your face also tells us that even in your sin, for those who are truly repentant, God does and he will lift up your face. 
There is no reason to be downcast over your sin when you know that God has forgiven you in Christ. So if you are just perpetually sinning and and, and continuing to fall into the same sin over and over again, just let me tell you, being uh, depressed over your sin and, and kind of just moping around and all of that is not going to buy you any penance before God. He has already made a way for you to be forgiven of that sin. He empowers you to live to live uh, in, in, in the gospel according to his spirit so that you can uh, find your way out of that sin according to the scriptures. So let us, let us heed God's words to Cain here. God says to Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you but you must rule over it. This is a warning to Cain. This is is God's grace and mercy towards Cain. If you don't do well, this is just going to get worse for you. If you continually live a life against God, finding flourishing in yourself, sin will always be crouching at your door. It will never go away. You will always find yourself weak to your temptations. Because instead of being mastered by God, you are mastered by your own sin. And it's controlling you. It will have its way with you just as it has its way with Cain that we see in verse 8. And this posture that Cain has chosen leads him into the most heinous of all crimes. Absolute premeditated, cold-blooded murder. Cain plots Abel's demise by inviting him out to the field. And the reason he does this is that so he will be out of sight uh, of all other eyes. And this is his solitary purpose, is to kill his brother. But while he's out of sight of others, he was not out of the sight of God. Which is why God asked in verse 9, where is your brother? And the answer to this question just shows us how dominant sin actually has become. Because Cain's first response is a shameless lie. It's actually the first human lie. So Cain is full of firsts. The first murder, the firstborn, the first lie. And not only is he lying, but he's lying to God. How greatly sin has progressed in less than one generation. And we see uh, further depravity in the question that he asked. The first human question in the Bible as well. When he asked God, am I my brother's keeper? How am I supposed to know where my brother is? You're God. You should know the answer to that question. And This just suggests that Abel's death is not Cain's responsibility, believe it or not. That somehow Cain is communicating to God that Abel deserved to die. And does this kind of sentiment still exist in our world today? Look out for number one. We still have the, the mentality of the survival of the fittest. And I'm going to 
pad my lifestyle, and if you don't pad your lifestyle or, or you're in some kind of bind, well, that's your bed, and you sleep in it. But I've made my bed nice and pretty. And at the end of the day, it's just about me. But within Christianity, the answer to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, is a resounding yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. That was what we, we heard read, Allie read for us from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. That's what it's telling us. It says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, from the beginning of, of creation, John is saying, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We are keepers of each other. And we do that through love. Because the way of God in Christ is love. And the way of Cain is death. So Cain then bears the consequences of his disobedience because there's always consequences, right? In verses 11 through 16. But in verse 13, we see that, that Cain believes his discipline is too much for him to bear. It's too much for me. And as is often the case when we experience the consequences of our actions, we sometimes like to wallow in self-pity, don't we? We like to say things are unfair or unjust towards me. Which is exactly what Cain is doing here. Yet he remains unrepentant. And still knows he is doomed. But it's God's mercy that must be highlighted here in these verses. Not Cain's crying out to the Lord. Because in verse 15, God says, surprisingly, that he will actually protect Cain instead of allowing him to suffer the same fate that his brother Abel suffered at his hands. Cain is afraid that people will murder him. And it's too much for him. And even though he deserved death, God doesn't bring it to him. He protects him. Because in just a few chapters, this is how we know that we deserve death, because in a few chapters, we see that God actually institutes capital punishment, saying to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Yet God in his mercy spares Cain. And still, even with all of that, still Cain leaves the presence of of the Lord. He chooses the life of a wanderer rather than a dweller with God. And as he makes these choices, we'll see here in our second point that sin actually intensifies because of this. It gets worse. Because from this moment, the pace of sin picks up. And it's through Cain's line that we see this pace kept. 
So in verses uh, 17 through 22 of, of, of Genesis chapter 4, all sorts of things are beginning to happen in the world uh, at the same time. So this is kind of looking ahead into the future of, of Cain's line. So you have children are being born. So this creation mandate is being fulfilled. People are having children. Cities are being built. Agriculture develops. Music begins and technology starts. All of this stuff is happening. And it's all a work of God's common, common grace working itself out in God's creation. Yet God, in those verses, and all of that new development, is nowhere mentioned. It, it's a culture without the true God. Well, verses 17 through 22 are also a record of the generations of Cain. And with the exception of the birth of Enoch, who we learn more about in Genesis chapter 5, things end up pretty grim by verse 24. These verses give a clear account as to how man has progressed, but also how sin has intensified. So let me just give you a quick, uh, a quick takeaway lesson from verses 17 through 22, because Enoch is mentioned here. And Enoch is significant, especially as we jump into chapter 5 next week. But I just wanted to mention this because it stood out to me this week. That God can redeem any family line at any time. He can do it. I don't, I don't care what your family history shows. I don't care if you came from a long line of, of murderers or, or something heinous like that. It, it does not determine your future. You may be the first one to begin a godly legacy in your family. The very first one. And let it start with you now. We read in Genesis chapter 5 verse 21 that Enoch, who was born of Cain, walked with God for 300 years. 300 years. We have men who can't even do that for 72 years. Enoch walked with God for 300, and it was 487 years before Lamech, his son, comes along and then screws it all up again. And this is who we'll turn our attention to now in verses 23 through 24. Because in these verses, we see that alongside those walking in the way of the Lord, like Enoch, you still have others walking in the way of Cain, many years after his death. And we hear it in the words Lamech speaks to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, which is just another, another sign that things have gone off the rails uh, in God's creation, because uh, Lamech has already just kind of Throwing out God's design for marriage by taking two wives instead of just having one wife. This is what Lamech says in verses 23 through 24 to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. As one commentator said, Lamech's song here is a loud declaration of belligerence. This is essentially a declaration of war, is what Lamech is saying. That if someone even slightly just wounds me, I will kill him. 
celebrates the way of vengeance and believes this will bring him flourishing, not God's mercy. That was clearly shown to his grandfather, Cain. So specifically, what we see happening here is the continued spread of pride, which is the root of all sin, isn't it? Pride. Lamech is saying that after killing a man for wounding him, that he is better able to take care of himself than God was able to take care of his grandfather Cain. God just says, I'll pay them back sevenfold. Lamech is saying, I'll do better. I'll do it 77-fold. I'll do better than God. C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin. He wrote this in in Mere Christianity. He says, according to Christian teachers... The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world Began. And this pace of pride has been set for all of those who come after Lamech. And all continues to look hopeless. The way of Cain seems to be overrunning a creation. And we're left asking, where, where is the one who will crush the serpent's head? Who will reverse the effects of sin? And for that answer, we'll turn to our final point in verses 25 and 26, where we do begin to see, just a small glimpse, but we do begin to see a glimpse of sin's reversal. So because of sin's dominance and sin's intensity in our life, there is nothing that we can trust in, in this world, that isn't already tainted with this reality. So you're only left with either continuing the tiresome cycle of trusting in yourself for flourishing or turning to the Lord who offers you rest from your restlessness. And I believe that is where the people of the earth are finding themselves in verses 25 and 26. They are now realizing that maybe... The snake crusher is not coming as soon as we thought. So the preview of things to come that we saw in verses 17 through 23 tells us that the snake crusher actually is nowhere close to coming. The first two hopes of this have not panned out in Cain and Abel. One has killed the other. And now we find them in these verses going back to what they know. Falling upon God and calling upon the name of the Lord and trusting in his promises, even when things seem really unclear, even when things seem really dark and there's not really any answers to their questions, they call out to God. And it's not until the birth of Adam and Eve's third child do we begin to see the promise of Genesis 3.15 being realized. So if you were to skip ahead into the the New Testament, you you see a number of genealogies right at the beginning of the Gospels. But the genealogy of Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, um, traces the godly line of Jesus 
all the way back to Adam and Eve's third child, Seth, who we meet here in these verses. Seth's name actually means for he appointed. So in contrast to Eve's words in verse 1 of I I have gotten a man, to her words now in verse 25 that say, God has appointed. Because it's in Seth's line, not Cain's, that the snake crusher, Jesus, comes. Francis Schaeffer used to always say, the Lord's work and the Lord's way. And this is, this is the kind of pattern that we see throughout the Bible, from the very beginning to the very end. People, people want a certain thing to go a certain way. We still live like this. We expect God to do these certain things in our lives in this particular order. And if they don't work out as planned, our face are downcast. And if you read the Bible, that, that never happens. It's never our work in our way. It's always the Lord's work in the Lord's way. I'll just give you some examples. Jacob. Genesis chapter 27, even though he has deceived his father, lies to his father's face, takes advantage of him in his blindness, he receives the blessing of God. Makes no sense to us. Or think of the appointment of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, who the Bible says was very meek. It says that he was probably one of the meekest persons in all of the world. Not someone you would necessarily think is a strong leader. He was possibly a stutterer. He was a coward. He made a myriad of mistakes, and yet God uses him to deliver his people from Egypt, establish the Passover, which remained the central event of God's people until Jesus comes. Or you have the story of Ruth, a faithful woman who most would not give a second thought we would look at the story of Ruth and think, how is that important? Yet it is Ruth that God uses to carry on the line of Seth and who also shows up in Jesus' genealogy. And then you have the anointing of David as king. David did not initially, if you remember the story of David in 1 Samuel, David did not initially meet the physical criteria of a king Kings were supposed to be tall and strong and handsome, and David didn't meet that criteria, nor did he have the family pedigree. He was a shepherd out in the fields. And then later on in his life, he has a huge moral failure. And then we read in in 1 Samuel chapter 8, to make matters worse, the people wanted a king like the other nations. They wanted to be like the other nations, David does not meet that profile initially. But what does God say in 1 Samuel 16? Which is important for us as well. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you have the story of Esther. This seemingly random Jewish girl who had no aspirations or even prospects of royalty. There was no reason that she would become the queen of Persia. And yet God anoints her to this position. And through this new appointment, she saves God's people, like Moses, from unjust slaughter. 
preserving God's people. And then all the way up to Jesus, the Son of God himself, who the Bible describes in this way in Isaiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So if Jesus walked through these doors this morning, we would probably just ignore him. There would be nothing about him that would make us go, wow, that's Jesus. There's nothing about him that we would do that. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And then God using people like Peter. And then using another murderer, the Apostle Paul. The Lord's work and the Lord's way. It's so obvious, isn't it? It's the Lord who is reversing the effects of sin. Not you and not me. It's the Lord doing that. And he does this in our world and in you only through the finished work of Christ. Not through your good deeds. Not through what you, what you don't do. He only does it through Jesus. And this we can see in verse 26 uh, is what the people are starting to realize as they call out, the name of the Lord. They begin to see that, that there is more to this world than just merely themselves. They can't do it. There is nothing that they can do apart from a supernatural intervention, which God does in Christ. Well, the, the warring parties that we see emerge in these verses are what um, Francis Schaeffer called the two humanities. It's the way of Cain or the way of Seth. This is what Schaefer says. He says, the one humanity, the, the humanity of Cain, or the way of Cain, says there is no God, or makes gods in its own imagination, or it tries to come to the true God in its own way. The other humanity comes to the true God in God's way. There is no neutral ground. You are either in the way of Cain or the way of Seth. There's no neutral ground. And the Bible tells us clearly who walks in the way of Seth or the way of Christ. Who is in God's family? And this is how Jesus answers that question in Matthew chapter 12. To those standing around him, Jesus says, or asks, Who is my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So what we see here is a new humanity, a new race established on the work of Christ. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And this humanity is marked by love. Jude 11, and the New Testament tells us, if you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are like Cain. And it's Cain who was sent out of the Lord's presence. Do not let that be true of you today. Flee to Christ and find in Him the one that you have needed all along. 
Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God who shows abundant grace and mercy. Even, even to, some, to a scoundrel like Cain, who kills his brother in cold blood, you still show him mercy. You still warn him, God. You still um, protect him. God, that is, that, that is the God who we worship this morning. So God, I pray that we would find, always find our rest in you, that we would always seek our flourishing in you and not in ourselves and not in the things of this world that are so broken and that are decaying every single day. Help us always to look to the one who never changes, the one who never will forsake us, the one who, who never sleeps or slumbers, who is always constantly keeping watch over his flock, over his people, and that is Jesus. And we pray in his name this morning. Amen.